The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. I'm seeing Orin right now, but maybe that's wrong. Yeah, that's that's where people are going to expect it to be. But as they say in Airplane, that would be exactly what they're expecting us to do, to put it where we said we were going to put it with a picture of Orin. Um, there should be now a live stream um, with uh, that should be broadcasting us. Um, and if you could just tweet that out when you have a second. Yep. Orin. Welcome yeah. to In Lieu of Fun. Thank you. Happy to so be here. So nice to have you here. What are you drinking? Uh, it is a lemon flavored sparkling water beverage. It's Le creepy up here. So anything I know else. we've had so many California people on lately. We can't like none of them can none of them can like really ethically imbibe with us. Uh, great. Okay, I have it all set. I'm gonna tweet this out. Uh, awesome. Okay, well, yesterday we beat back the uh, spammers, the YouTube bombers, and uh, thanks to, uh, I believe it was John Bordeaux who tweeted at me today the FBI's warnings about uh, uh, Zoom bombing. It's still totally unclear to me who those people are, um, but I think if they, you know, attack when we have Danielle and don't attack when if they attack, are we getting attacked? Yeah, I've been looking. But if they attack when we have Oren, uh, when they have Danielle, and not when we have Oren, then we'll have to discuss whether this is a pro Fourth Amendment thing or a misogyny thing. Um, Oren, it's so nice to. I don't think I've ever actually met you in person. I think that's right. We've we've messaged, but never never met in person. So well, nice it's really you. nice to e meet you, as is so in vogue these days. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, since we're a civilized crew uh, today, um, and we don't seem to be uh, 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 nasty people, if you want to get in on the conversation, uh, just uh, sketch out your question in um, in the. Uh, uh, Q&A, we will not be following the chat for obvious reasons. In fact, I think I'm going to shut the chat off so that it is uh, uh, unavailable. Um, uh, and But you can pose your questions in the Q&A, and if we uh, are convinced you're a real person, we will invite you on the show to, to ask your question live. So, Oren. How are you spending your time? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's all all family all the time. Uh, and so um, not getting a lot of academic work done under the circumstances, uh, but, uh, but I figure that's okay. Uh, but I, I have this impression that your academic work is almost entirely nocturnal anyway. <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> Um, that is largely true. Uh, uh, I have, I, I think there's actually a name for my condition, delayed phase sleep syndrome. It means being an extreme night owl. Uh, and so at about 11 o'clock at night, that's when I sort of start to start to, you know, my brain wakes up, but I'm, there's I'm, a name I'm, for that. Well, at least <laughs> the page, which, which I think counts as a name. That's uh, that's enough. Um, but yeah, apparently it's a name. I'm a night owl is another way of putting it. So that's true. I'm I'm normally a, a pretty pretty uh, night oriented person. So does does COVID nineteen affect you more or less? Because like if you have to be awake during the day because of like kids and family stuff, is that just completely disruptive of your nights or like how does it change your um, your work habits? I mean, I think I'm. I count myself incredibly blessed that everyone is healthy and everyone is doing okay. And, and I'm, I'm not too focused on 
on you know whether I'm making a lot of progress on my book right now. Very sorry if there are any editors at Oxford University Press. My apologies, I'm about five years behind on that book project. And it looks like it's gonna be at least another year. So um, I'm just not, I'm not too worried about that uh, right now, given given the circumstances, but-, but My student law review editors, editors were not so forgiving. I pulled like five all-nighters in a row, finishing my, my, my piece. I'm You're exhausted. You're so traumatized by this. It was, a, it was like, we had relocated the dog. We thought the dog was dying. Like things were really terrible. And like, at the same time, the law review editors are like, keep writing, get us 30,000 <laughs> more words. And I was just like, I like, what, what's a, going on? Anyways, a little it's, power is a terrible thing. Yeah. yeah I, I think post tenure, the answer to that becomes no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is if we have any jobs anymore, that's tomorrow's or no, that's Thursday's discussion about the future of higher education. Okay, so for people watching this who don't know- Oh yeah, Oren, we should introduce Oren. Yeah, I, I wanna say a few words about Oren because, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's uh, a really uh, interesting uh, example of what you can do with, um, with legal academia. So Oren, and Oren, correct me if any of this is wrong, is, the most cited law professor in the country by courts. Is that right? I don't, I don't think that's right. Oh, uh, I thought that you were just like the most cited period, full stop. Like no, in no. law, in <laughs> academic, sorry. By the time we're done, you guys are gonna be like, well, why are we having Oren? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's gonna be like, you guys are gonna be like, and you're at Yale, right? <laughs> oh, you're not? Oh, darn. We wanted oh. Oren Smurf. No, I, I, I'm gonna look <laughs> this up. You, this is Oren Kerr. He teaches law at a community college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he took a, he went to law school you're one time. Um, no, uh, whether or not the specific fact is true, like Oren does. Uh, Fourth Amendment work that is like the stuff that courts consult when they have a significant Fourth Amendment case. Uh, it is like in some ways, Oren is like a very old style law, law school uh, uh, academic, which is like the purpose of a lot of your work is actually to be doctrinally useful. Is that fair? <laughs> that is true. All right, so how does it feel to be like a fossilized dinosaur? <laughs> yes, that's a good lead, Ben. <laughs> no one's ever going to come on our show again. <laughs> no, you know I mean that as like a, a the highest compliment, but you're doing something that's pretty out of vogue, right? Like you're actually doing work with an idea of, you know, pushing doctrine as developed through the in the courts in uh, giving it guidance, giving it nudges in this direction or that direction. Um, and that used to be centrally what the legal ac academia was about. And somehow we moved away from that. Uh, I think it's basically right. Um, and and the, the good part is there's not a lot of competition for those <laughs> that are trying to you know that are, are, are in in some sense in conversation with judges, uh, having having to have that trying that dialogue uh, and speaking to them in language that judges understand. There's there aren't that many of us trying to have that conversation, so um, I think it makes it a lot easier uh, be, because there's uh, fewer of us, less less competition. Um, I mean, it, it all depends. The the great thing about being a law professor it is it's a ridiculously awesome job, and what makes it so amazing is that. Um, once you're past the tenure threshold, and for historical reasons, the tenure threshold in law schools is actually relatively an easy burden to meet. Something like 98% or something get tenure, 95%, pretty very high percentage relative to other fields. It's kind of a choose your own adventure novel. You can kind of pick whatever you want to do, whatever audience you care about. Um, and and the audience that I care about, I care about like what the actual law is. 
Um, in part because the issues that I care about are ones that are unresolved and ones where I think the courts are gonna go in interesting directions and will feel pressures to go in interesting directions. So I see a lot of what I'm doing as kind of um, laying out the options for judges on issues that they are just starting to think about and then hopefully kind of push and nudge them a little bit in certain directions that I think are, are right or wrong. Um, but, but more than anything else, sort of getting them ready for that moment of decision where they have to figure out how the law, um, how the law should change in response to some technological um, uh, uh, evolution more than anything else. Um, and so I think it's like really, really fun and um, exciting to find these issues because the technology is always changing and you can figure out like, what are the technologies that are gonna be transformative um, 10 years out or 15 years out and, and think about that now and articulate what the choices are and articulate here, here's you know, sort of the, the roadmap for judges, like here's what's going on. Um, and and I, I think it's incredibly exciting uh, to do. I just, I love doing it and I, I enjoy it, but um, I, I, I am aware that there are relatively few law professors that kind of have, that have picked that particular adventure as their choose, choose your own adventure uh, conclusion. But, but I guess the question I'm getting to is from, from my point of view, um, it seems obvious that that is the desirable choose your own adventure. That like, why would you want to study the law except in dialogue either with legislators, which is of course a different, uh, uh, or in dialogue in a way that, that for example, Kate does with companies whose behavior is shaping the law but that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Okay, so I totally get that. But a huge amount of, of modern legal academia is just a kind of fetish about theoretical contribution without actually a meaningful real world dialogue with anyone. And the, I, I, I am, interested in why you think the world has moved away from the idea of the legal academy as giving guidance to some actor about how, whether it's judges in your case or uh, 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 people writing terms of service or designing you know, content moderation policies in Kate's case, the idea of how did the legal academy move away from being useful? <laughs> um, wow. I also want to say that like, this is amazing to me, Ben. It's so fascinating to hear that this is like your conception of Oren because I think of Oren as like kind of edgy, like of like basically taking like the traditional, like I don't think of that as study at all. I think is that as like the establishment that's very hard, like, the work that he does it's doctrinal is like super um is like how most law professors think of like legal academia i would think of like kind of breaking out what the courts are doing and and i think of him as doing arbitrage between like the tech and the courts and like and and like and like and that's like he puts the technology in terms of doctrine and i put the technology in terms of like policy i guess you could say or like in terms of like kind of like legal theory or kind of private policy, private policy in terms of legal, um, legal like, administration or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting to me to hear that. Like, or I'm just kind of curious if like, Oren, like, I'm just, if, uh, I'm just interested, like how you think of your scholarship, uh, if you are agree with Ben or me or a little bit of both. First, I want to say I emailed you guys yesterday to ask, what were we going to be talking about? You were like, there are no topics. We're just going to wing it. And it's like, I didn't, I was not expecting the, the, um, like talk about myself. Uh, oh yeah. Angle. No, you're super hey, interesting. Are you kidding? There are no, there are no <laughs> topics. We wing it. This is, we wing it. We're talking about you. We're going to switch to, we're going to switch in a minute to COVID-19 surveillance. Um, but I'm, I, you have a fascinating career and I, I, I want to understand it. So, uh, well, thank you. I, I said it all, it's super flattering. So I, I should say, um, I think legal academia is in a, in a funny position. It's, it's half academic and half uh, training for a profession. And, the, and law professors 
struggle between those two poles of what exactly are we doing? And at one level, we are training people to become lawyers in the sense of like, when you graduate from law school, most people do become practicing lawyers. So you, I think that's like just an unavoidable part. This is actually like a training for a profession. And there are parts of that which are true, like, here's this job you're going to do. Let's give you the skills for it. And then half of it is, you know, it's in a university and, um, and it's part of the university mindset. And so you know, people are looking for scholarly ideas and you know, in the last 50 years or so, the scholarly focus has really uh, taken off in the kind of worldview of, of most law professors, shifting, I think, from a world where it used to be law professors were lawyers who happened to be academics to academics who happen to have a law degree. Um, and that's just a worldview that's changed. And, and my favorite essay on this is uh, Richard Posner wrote a short essay in the Chicago Law Review about 15 years ago, maybe maybe 10 years ago, on the death of uh, Bernard Meltzer, who was a University of Chicago law professor. And Posner laments um, the, the sort of end of the Meltzer era of law professors who were lawyers who could really break down a legal problem and provide practical advice for legal institutions. Uh, and he kind of blames himself and the rise of the law and economics movement for like basically dissing that. Uh, and in, in this essay, he basically says like, wow, that was actually really, really useful. And we should go back to that. Um, and my own view, I'm, I'm a pluralist on these, on these issues. I think there's so many different ways of thinking about being a law professor and they're all good and they're all different and they all have their value. Um, but there's definitely been a shift to the idea of, you know, a lot of like half of the uh, new law professors have PhDs uh, and they're approaching legal subjects from a particular discipline uh, and the idea of you know law professors being lawyers first who are thinking about problems as lawyers is is just not not where it you know used to be it's just not not as fashionable but i think it really is this there's there's just been a, a conflict between these two different views of of the legal academy and we've really shifted in a direction of um phd orientation and um people who happen to be um, academic, academics who happen to have a law background um, is, is kind of the most, that's the dominant style, I think, at least in the, in the you know, more sort of um, schools that are higher, the top schools, whatever you want to put them. So, so I think that's where it came from. And as for my own, um, as for my own view, I, I, I see myself as, you know, trying to bridge those two different worlds but definitely from the standpoint of a lawyer and somebody who, I mean, I read the cases and you know, a lot of times the first section of an article that I write is here are the cases, um, here, here, are the, here are the cases the courts are struggling with this new problem. And let me actually explain all the cases and where the law is coming from. And it'll just be like a straight legal descriptive section. And I think that's just, that's relatively uncommon uh, these days. Yeah, they hate uh, description. I found that out when I was on the market. Description is like the bane of legal, of like a legal scholarship. But I do think that there's something to be said for like bringing new knowledge into the field and doing the descriptive work. It's kind of hard. And for me, I don't know, I'm sure it's the same for you, but like once you figure it out, it's kind of like, okay, I figured it out. And writing it all up is kind of tedious. Um, but it's, uh, I think that it's, um, I, I do think that it's kind of, it's really nice going for, I mean, obviously theory has its, has its value too, but um, I, I love the doctrine and we, I'm teaching internet law right now and citing to you. Um, and I'm teaching property right now and citing to you. Um, and so it's, yeah, I know it's like, it's, it's, but it's, but both are very relevant for the, for the stuff that you do. Uh, do you teach property by the way? I don't. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating moment. Um, so, Lauren, before we, uh, I ask you about your, my absolute favorite of your articles, um, I, uh, Cameron has a question that is pretty cool. Uh, so, Cameron, I think if you, uh, I, I, I can't get your camera, if you turn your camera on, then we can see your lovely face. Uh, uh, otherwise, we'll hear your disembodied voice. All right. Um, I don't know if you'd see my camera. Well, so I noticed, Oren, that you have a background in mechanical and aerospace engineering. Uh, according to Wikipedia, you have a master's in engineering. Um, so I was just wondering why the why the switch to law? And you know, did that background help you in law at all? Or yeah, 
Yeah, it's useful because if I ever need to design a submarine turbine, I'm like straight into into that. Um, Yeah, so I was uh, my. I I think the real reason of how how I ended up taking that turn I did is my my father was an engineering professor, uh, and um, when I was a little kid, he used to talk to me about like which engineering graduate programs I should go to and which parts you know. Should I be a theorist of you know engineering? Should I be a, a you know somebody who was more on the empirical side? So he was he was an engineering professor who was training me to be an engineering professor, and so I went to college in engineering and I went to grad school in engineering. And once I got to grad school, I realized it was just not for me, and um, I, I I took the LSAT like right when I got to grad school. It just took a total turn. Um, and you know, in terms of whether it was useful or not, I go back and forth on this question. I think um, any non-law discipline is at some level useful just because it's good experience outside of thinking about law. It's just sort of another you know, sort of way of thinking about the world. I think probably it hurt me in some ways in trying to think about law when I started law school because I was, I, I thought it had to be the case that in law school, you should be able to derive the correct answer <laughs> um, from the materials. And I was just completely befuddled by the fact that my professors were not giving me the correct answers. Cause I was like, you know, <laughs> what's the equation and what's the right answer. And the, my first day of law school, actually um, my torch professor um, gave us two cases with exactly the same facts and opposite outcomes. And I was just completely confused during this entire class. And after the class, I went up to him and I said, I just have a, a question, which one of these was right? And being um, the helpful <laughs> professor he was, he just looked at me and went, ha, and then walked out of the room. <laughs> and I was like, what, what does that mean? Like, what? So I was so I was completely lost um, for most of my first semester of law school. And I, I think, unfortunately, that was the engineering background, or at least no one explaining to me, like, law is really, really different. Um, so that's kind of how it just basically, um, you know, my dad's background, I think, was probably what led to that. And I loved, I loved studying engineering in the beginning, just once it got, you know, all engineering all the time, that's when I wasn't for me. If it's any so, consolation, sorry, Ben, but if it's no, any, no, consolation, I had two judge, I think, you know, this, I've talked about it. I talked about it yesterday, but like I had two judges as parents and I got to law school and also thought that I was supposed to get the right answer because my parents were like trial judges and like, did like, you know, there was like, there was a, it was, it was, I don't know, there was something that was much more, um, there was much more concrete about what they were doing. And I think I had a science, like a scientist kind of mindset already, but I had the, oh my gosh, it's actually super refreshing to hear you say this because I had the exact same problem. And it was probably not until the second semester of my 1L year that I realized that like, law school was about all of the gray area and that they were playing with us in putting out the cases that went one way and the cases that went out the other way. I flag that for my students now. Like I'm really open with it. I'm like, hey, we're playing with these ideas. This is just a game. There's no right answer. We're just playing with facts. Do you do that now when you teach? So um, when I teach 1Ls, with criminal law, I will be absolutely explicit about kind of the role of each of the parts of the class, like what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, I, it's, I don't often teach 1L, so I don't, you know, by, by the time I get them as 2Ls in criminal procedure, that's, they, they get all this stuff. Um, but it's been a source of frustration for me that we don't start off legal education by explaining really like going behind the, you know, the, 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 the curtain and saying, here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. And here's how this fits together. And, I, and so actually I wrote um, one of, you know, 10 years ago now, how to read a legal opinion. It was you know, a, sort of a guide for myself as a law student of like, oh my God, I was so lost for so long. And this is my like, how to read a case just to bring people up to speed. And, and, and it, it frustrates me that we don't do more of that. We sort of, you know, it, I, I totally get the idea of legal education of, you throw them in and you just throw a bunch of cases at students and they'll figure it out. But it's just, it's an incredibly inefficient way to figure it, it out. It seems super and, inefficient. Um, it's a huge waste of energy in my, in my, in my mind and, and laziness and, on the teacher's part. And, and I think a lot of students don't so, figure it out. It's like the worst part. So anyway, keep going. 
I want to ask you about another feature of your legal career that is, or your, uh, which is distinctive, I think, which is that you're funny and you're actually not being funny now, but you're, uh, you have a, your public presence has a kind of a meta quality. Um, and I want to ask it with specific reference to uh, my favorite, second favorite, third favorite law review article of all time, which is your uh, article in the green bag, A Theory of Law, um, which um, is kind of a spoof on, uh, I mean, it's kind of a spoof on the law review footnote form and the kind of need to find a source. And so I'm interested in where humor fits into legal education in your view. There's something, there's this consistent theme throughout your blogging. It's not in your law review articles except that one, but um, it's a consistent theme of your blogging and your Twitter presence. In your Twitter presence, you really have this, um, uh, you know, your tweets are often the attempts to articulate the subtext of politics. Um, and I'm just kind of interested in where humor fits into all of this. Hmm. I, I have not studied myself nearly well enough to get ready for this, uh, for this thing. <laughs> so, so, you're um, doing great. You're... When I was a child, no. Um, See, it's because you're only drinking sparkling water. <laughs> yeah, I know. You'd be yeah. fine if you were joining us for scotch. Um, so I think there are a lot of absurd things in politics and absurd things in law and things are the way they are for, for sort of odd reasons and we get locked into these dynamics that we don't think about um, and I think humor is a way of stepping back and pointing out those dynamics in a way that people can hear. So uh, a, a huge some sort of meta joke about a debate or poking fun uh, at kind of a way we talk about things with humor is a way of kind of making people laugh. And then as they're laughing, they think, why is this funny? Oh yeah, that's funny because it's actually describing a lot of things that I experience and it's accurately capturing some dynamic. And so I think humor is like a way we can talk about things that are hard to talk about. Um, um, in a in a non-judgmental way, right? It's sort of it's it's humor is a it's a way of reflecting things, right? It's, you don't you're not shining a light directly on it. You're sort of seeing the reflection of it, and that makes people think about what it is that they're looking at. And so my hope is that that's that's kind of a way of 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 raising these topics uh, in a way that we can hear. Up until relatively recently you would have been described as a conservative. Um, now, all of those people are, uh, I guess we have to divide everybody into, you know, conservative or never Trump conservative or Trumpist conservative. Um, but, you know, you're a kind of part of the sort of traditional, you know, Federalist society, um, uh, world, uh, and I'm curious how you understand the development of the conservative legal world in the current environment. And let, let me just uh, a clarification of the conservative legal world being kind of who who or what these days. Yeah, I was going to say this seems well, I like no. I mean, I, that's sort of part of the question, right? Like there was a time when if somebody had said to me, who were the five most interesting conservative law professors, I would have listed you among them. And now if somebody asked me that question, I would have to say, what's a conservative law professor, right? <laughs> what is a conservative? I, right. I think I still know what a law professor is. Um, but but, but the, the other parts of that sentence are, are sort of approaching gibberish. And so, I mean, as somebody who kind of grew up in the conservative legal movement, whatever that meant then, and is now associated uh, to the extent that you have a public political identity. You're uh, clearly a, a critic of the president. A, uh, you're associated with the 
a group that George Conway put together of uh, dissident conservatives. I, I mean, how do you understand the direction the conservative legal movement has taken or the divisions within it? Hmm. Yeah, so um, I think the conservative legal world, and I'm going to more or less mean like the federal society community, because I think that's pretty much the same thing. Uh, I would I think that that's a good baseline. Um, has always been a constellation of a group of different people driven by some competing ideas. Uh, and it's all kind of a big tent. Um, and a lot of times you'll hear, you know, oh, the conservative, they're all about originalism. And that's actually not, I think, what's motivating that crowd. Um, and if you actually talk to individuals at a federal society meeting and ask them, how should we interpret this part of the constitution or that part of the constitution, you will not hear originalist answers by and large. Uh, so so I, I think what happened is that there's a constellation of different ideas and then Trump comes along and the initial reaction of that group was almost uni uniformly opposition to Trump. I mean, it's sort of fascinating. We think of the primary period, the, the GOP primary period. Um, I, almost no one identified members of the Federal Society were at least publicly in favor of Trump. Everyone was in favor of somebody else. Um, people were you know, dissing Trump and thought he was horrible and terrible and outrageous um, and, and you know, a stain on conservatism and all that stuff. And then he gets the nomination. Um, and then, you know, I think there in part there are jobs to be had. Uh, and in part, there are people that start thinking, well, there's that can be dealt with as compared to the Democrats who, you know, are 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 they're gonna do what they're gonna do. And and people who start thinking I can work within the Trump world. Uh, and so you got kind of a split, I think, between those that are publicly sticking to their primary era reactions uh, and those that are um, willing to work with or think you can work with or fine with or in favor of the Trump administration. And, and I think there's just a divide. There's a genuine divide in, in the federal society world about what do you do with Trump? Um, and I think you see that spread with kind of checks and balances on one hand and on the other hand, um, you know, Attorney General Barr speaks at the Federal Society Convention and is given a standing ovation. And just that's just a divide as to the way to respond to this, um, to the administration. I want to talk about uh, surveillance in the context of COVID-19. So, we ran a piece on lawfare yesterday. All the days blend together now. I have no distinction between day or night. Uh, by Stuart Baker, arguing that states should, states that have low incidence of COVID-19 so far should uh, uh, adopt this Singaporean uh, iPhone and Android app that uh, tracks contacts so that um, if, uh, if we both have the app downloaded and our phones are within a few feet of each other on a, a reasonably protracted basis, both phones log that they have been near the other one so that if I am then diagnosed with COVID-19, uh, I can make my phone available to public health workers who can then figure out everybody whom I've been in contact with. And this has apparently been significant uh, in Singapore's efforts to, uh, and, and there's something like it going on in China. Um, and so understanding that as a matter of doctrine, this is probably you know, you voluntarily downloaded the app, you have a third party relation, you're giving data voluntarily to third parties. There's probably no constitutional issue of consequence here that can't be dealt with. How do you feel about it? Like, should we all voluntarily download this app and like leave aside state policy? 
is it a good idea in this environment for us to be all engaged in voluntary tracking? Or, uh, and, and obviously the public health benefits of that are pretty obvious and pretty substantial, or is this something that is the thin edge of a very large wedge that is kind of, you know, what the, you know, what the deep state's gonna drive a truck through the moment this whole crisis is done? So I think there's a baseline question, which is, yeah, I mean, I think all of these options are frightening and the, the status quo is frightening, right? People are in their houses all day long and are not free to go outside very often, um, or at least only under certain conditions. Those are things that are completely unimaginable a month ago, two months ago. Um, and so when we consider these questions, I think there's this really, really important issue of what's the baseline? Um, and, and that may, may be important because it may flip what our defaults are. Um, so the surveillance may be a way of allowing people to go outside. Uh, and it may be that without the surveillance, you can't go outside. And then, then we start saying, well, you know, is, is the surveillance bad? The surveillance may actually be a means of allowing us more freedoms rather than less freedoms. Not to say that it has to be, but like the, the current situation we're in is so different from anything we have experienced before that, um, I think we have to reassess some of our instincts and priors from an earlier age where we're worried, you know, the government might find out what church we go to, to like, you know, the government isn't letting us go outside. Um, this is like a totally new environment with new concerns. Um, and, and so I guess my, my instinct is to be deeply worried about all of the above, like every single option you name, I am deeply worried about it. Um, I do think that in terms of surveillance programs, it should just be understood at the outset of any such program uh, that it's all sunsetted. There's all a time frame on it. Um, so maybe we, hope. We, we would hope. Yeah. This so this is just in thinking about what the options might be. Um, you know, maybe it's a six month and then it gets renewed a um, uh, 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 program or every two months it has to be renewed or there's some there's some way of saying you know when a certain political condition ha happens or, or public health condition happens then these powers expire uh, but any of these surveillance tools we'd want to have an a, a, a sunset on how long they can exist and you'd want to basically just get rid of them as soon as they're not needed um, but i don't think that means we shouldn't consider them as freedom enhancing measures now given where our defaults are. Uh, we need to be really, really careful about all of the above. But I, I'm, I'm less afraid of the idea of these programs, um, um, given what the reality is without them, probably. Um, but I and think that we have we have an infrastructure in place to curb them, like fit, like more than more than other autocratic states do if they like institute like these types of things. We have courts. We have like we have like mechanisms of government. Um, I love hopefully. the use of the word other in that sentence. I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you revealed my priors. <laughs> I'm going to uh, uh, bring in uh, Ted Gilchrist, who has a uh, very interesting follow-up question to this. Ted, uh, feel free to uh, uh, turn on your camera if you want us to see your face. Otherwise, uh, feel free to speak as a disembodied voice. I guess I'll go disembodied because I don't see how to to turn on my camera. All right, can you hear me okay? Just fine. Okay. I realize this makes it less fun because you're all these law, law nerds, but there's this um, service called Kinsa Health. I'm, I'm sure, have you heard about that? Rachel so Maddow talked about it. So for those of you who have not heard about Kinsa, this is a story that appeared, I think, last night in the New York Times about this company that sells internet connected thermometers. And when you take your temperature, it uh, 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 therefore creates this giant data set of people with fevers all over the country, uh, which they have obviously anonymized, but they're using as a kind of two week ahead of the CDC tracker of, um, of COVID-19 and the 
uh, the good news from this story is it actually shows uh, a, a sharp decline around the country in extraordinary fevers. Um, and um, uh, so that may be a harbinger of good news to come. Sorry, Ted, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. Oh, I just wanted yeah, to I mean, give some explanatory material. Well, I mean, my understanding is um, it's is that it's anonymized. So, um, and so I realize it makes it less interesting as a legal question because if it's if it's truly anonymized and if it's not a, a threat, then you know as long as you trust technologies, then there's nothing to worry about. And from my point of view, I mean, I'm not sure why. The, there's been such widespread use of the Kinsa thermometers before this, um, but I guess from my point of view, I'd be tempted to say, you know, let's everybody get a, one of these things because, because I guess they've been shown to be very predictive as far as the data. And I guess I just have no problem in terms of big brother, you know, aspects of it, but maybe I'm just naive. Uh, so, Oren, what do you think? Um, uh, should we all um, uh, have thermometers uh, by internet can enable smart thermometers and take our temperatures every day as a uh, to give a private company um, uh, a, a kind of heads up on our on on national health trends? So, you know, my instinct for all of these sorts of questions is to look to other countries that are trying different things to see what might be working um, to the extent we can tell that. And then ideally we'd wanna know what's working and then try, you know, you could try a version of, of that. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard. Whenever I hear any of these surveillance programs, my initial instinct is like, no, you don't wanna do that. Um, but then again, I, I start thinking, okay, well, what are the alternatives? Is this needed to allow people to go out into the world? Is this needed to allow people to go back to school? Is this needed to allow people to go out to work? Um, and if, if, if there's something that has been proven to be useful in another country, that may be a promising option. It's just, um, it's, it, I think all, all these options are hard, but we should be open to something like that with a sunset um, if we think it's really needed to give us back some of the freedoms and options that we that we have traditionally had. Um, so one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Oren, was because um, we had both read a tweet that you had sent out that was, I think when Trump, it was a couple of days ago, about five days ago, you had a brief thread that was about the politics of basically um, Trump using, um, I thought it was actually quite smart, and Ben and I kind of went two different directions on it, um, and we were curious what your thoughts were. The gist of your Trump was uh, of your tweet was this was basically that Trump is going to be able to insulate himself um, from criticism because he's going to turn all the criticism to state governors and kind of have create himself as this kind of like, well, I wanted to bring back the economy. I wanted to do all of these things. Let's raise the ban. And if if people aren't raising the ban, then it's on the state governors for for that. Um, and um, to my mind, coming from a very, um, uh, from rural upstate Western New York, uh, that was, uh, with a lot of conservative friends that resonated. Like, I think that that's exactly how, um, and a lot of, I know a lot of people who vote for Trump and a lot of people that, um, you know, will vote for him again. Um, and so I'm, I'm just really curious, uh, I'm curious kind of to just to hear what you think about this in light of the fact that now he's walked back the Easter, like kind of the Easter rising as it were. Um, I feel like this like resonates with the Jews. It resonates with the Christians. Like we're totally, everyone can get behind like this rebirthing thing that we all want to have happen in, um, in April, but, uh, except, uh, that we actually should stay in our homes. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, Trump is incredibly good at figuring out ways of blaming people for things um, and for avoiding blame himself in ways that strike a lot of us, myself included, as utterly preposterous on the merits, but work with like a large number of people. Um, and so, you know, if something bad happens, he comes up with his explanation for who other than him should be blamed for it. 
and if something good happens, he takes credit for it, right? That's his basic move on on everything. So so it seemed clear at the outset that he was going to have to come up with various people to blame for um, COVID-19. And, and I, I think he still, I, I assume he still tries to situate himself as the, um, as the back to normalcy guy, or at least you know, he tried that for a while and I'll probably stick with that. At the same time, November is so far away, right? Like this story didn't, you know, nobody was paying much attention to this two months ago. Uh, and um, it's all, it's, you know, has taken over the world now. Who knows what the world looks like in November or, or October when when things are underway? But um, you know the the one guarantee is that Trump will have a way of he'll have his answer for why um, you know everything bad is someone else's fault, and a lot of people are going to find that pretty persuasive. That's probably the only thing we can be sure of. So we have a question from uh, an anonymous attendee and. And uh, just as a precaution, I'm not going to allow this person to pose the question because there's anonymity stuff and I'm a little bit concerned that the person will get on and scream racial epithets at you. That said, it's a good question, so I'll just read it. Uh, uh, have you discussed the skeevy security and privacy practices of Zoom? Um, and this may be a question actually better directed to Kate. But you know we are using this uh, uh, platform, which is incredible for this purpose. It allows us uh, to meet with each other, and I'm sure we've all had eight or ten Zoom meetings today. Um, plus, uh, we can interact with an audience in a fashion that's quite controlled and and elegant. We can interface with. Um, uh, YouTube as we see fit, which is kind of cool. It would be even cooler if I could figure out how to do it properly. Apologies to everybody on YouTube who's still stuck at the other link. Um, but what do we know about Zoom and uh, who they are as a as a privacy actor? Oren, I like. I feel like you can maybe answer this. I we. <laughs> Um, St. John's, God bless them. Literally it's a Catholic university, um, like has no, um, has been using WebEx, Cisco WebEx. And, uh, I have not been using zoom to teach my classes. I have had a number of technical difficulties in the last couple of weeks, such as to necessitate going to zoom on my own, uh, for my classes, just so that I can like you know, it all of a sudden at like nine o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, I'm like, hello, uh, I can't see any of you and none of you can see me. And so like, anyways, um, but all of them have brought this up and I think it's a pretty big deal. My understanding is not only the data that Zoom is giving to other people, but the data that Zoom gives to the host upon the end of the meeting, which includes transcripts, for example, of in like private chats between participant members, um, it, like that are, you know, that like they think are private cause it says private, um, and, uh, are not actually private at all. Um, and so that's, that actually seems much more kind of like, I don't know, a cat's type of reasonable expectation of privacy to me of like something says marked private and then it goes to a, to a transcript versus like, a surveillance data collecting mechanism. Although there's all presumably kind of somewhere in the terms of service that we all clicked through that said, says when we say private, what we mean is not private, right? Yeah. I mean, right. That's, I mean, that's like, I always take that away as the lesson for all of these things for better, or for worse, or, and I like, this is much more your bailiwick than mine. Yeah, and I, I haven't, yeah, just as a user, I've only experienced these these questions, but my sense is that Zoom was just not originally designed to be a super secure platform. It's designed to be really useful and easy to use. So like, you know, the default is you get a, an account number and then you can just send that around and anybody can join in. Um, and it's really useful, no need for a password or anything like that. I guess there is a password option that you can introduce uh, just to keep people from joining your call when you don't want them to join. Um, and I, I would guess it's something where Zoom over the next few weeks rolls out 
another version that is more secure uh, because I, I suspect they just didn't, they weren't thinking about this as the way that the entire world would communicate um, in which you'd have repeat players distributing, for example, their account numbers, which would then allow any third party to just join in to any person's calls unless that, you know, with, without password protection. So, so I think it's just, it wasn't designed quite for the sensitive role that it has now. And um, I would, I would assume Zoom is making it a priority to add those um, privacy features that it hasn't, that at least, I don't know if it hasn't had them or at least they're not as prominent on the current version. Um, so I haven't gotten a chance to talk to you about this, but I'm really curious. So I'm good friends with um, Kashmir Hill who is the New York Times reporter who broke the Clearview AA story. Yeah, um, sure. You know Cash? I do. She's Her work is just fantastic. I'm a big fan. She's amazing, right? And like, you know, it's really funny because the day that that story broke, it was a Sunday A1 story for the New York Times. And she was like eight and a half months pregnant. And her husband was out of town. I took her out to breakfast and we like hung out and it was great. And um, we were we're talking about the story and she's telling me the story of how she got the story, which is just an incredible story to begin with. Um, like some real old school reporting of like literally going and knocking on doors, uh, that like, you know, at like places. Um, but one of the things that she says is she's like, she always has just, and I think even her Twitter profile describes herself as a privacy pragmatic uh, pragmatist. Um, and I kind of like, love that formulation. Um, and not just cause I'm friends with her, but because I actually think it's intellectually rigorous. It's kind of like, it doesn't, um, induce a knee jerk reaction to any type of like kind of either private company based privacy, um, infringement or state based, even though you might have your priors in those directions, it doesn't like it kind of, um, and one of the things that she talked about was she was like talking about, um, the, uh, the federal and state level law enforcement people that she'd talked to that had used this AI, Clearview AI, I think. And like, she was like, you know, Kate, like it's, I really think it's incredibly invasive and terrifying, but at the end of the day, it's also really good. Like, it's also really good at identifying these people that are committing these crimes and like, who knows? Like I, you know, and so she's like, I don't know how I like feel about this. And she said, I'm not like betraying anything. She said this all in like podcasts and everything else. Um, but I, I, I kind of like, I'm bringing this to you because I'm just fascinated to know, like, there is this kind of like, well, like, is there a benefit to actually being a little bit more about like uh, for this, it feels like, I feel like the Clearview AI is so creepy, so bad. So like, there's just like a gut reaction that I have. And um, her caveat was so surprising to me. And I'd be fascinated to know what you've been thinking about this. So, so I think on a lot of privacy issues, we walk in the door with our gut reactions and the gut reactions are usually reflecting some prior norm or understanding of what's public, what's private. And then the new technology comes around and just upsets that understanding. And our initial reaction is like, oh my God, this is terrible, which, which is often, that's often a good reaction um, one way or the other. But then, but then, you know, we, we have to start questioning that. And I think that's part of what makes uh, Cash's work so good is sort of where are we going with this? You know, with, with the Clearview AI stuff in particular, you know, are we just going to end? Is it inevitable that we'll end up in a world where this is widely available, uh, and uh, whether anyone tries to stop it or not, uh, you know, it might just be that's just the world we're going to end up in, and and then it, I think maybe gives you a different perspective on what to make of government use of it, um, and 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 I think also you know I'm, I'm largely a pragmatist on these questions as well. If there's a huge law enforcement benefit, I mean. It maybe we want to have a legal regime that governs use of the technique and maybe you need a court order in order to make a query and limits on the queries that can be made and the like but but where there are genuine public interests in using a technology the fact that it kind of um, worries us at the front end uh, is not a reason that we shouldn't use it at all um, in part because just the nature of this technology right we're, we're in this amazing technological age where what we can do is constantly changing and if you start any one time with your instincts and let those instincts govern, you know, it, five years later, people look at you and you think that's 
so funny. Well, like, I mean, like I teach cats, from. you probably, you teach cats. I mean, like, it's like the, the underpinning of everything, but like the reasonable expectation of privacy of a phone booth, like who can even identify with that anymore? Right. And so like, that is like I, that. I show my students a picture of the Beatles in a phone booth. There's a great picture of it. I remember that phone. photo. Um, yeah, it's a great picture I found online. And so I use it not only to explain what phone booths are, uh, but to just explain who the Beatles were, because I figure that's sort of part of <laughs> part of my role. Um, but uh, but you know, just it's changing so fast, and we need to kind of be like, whoa, this is where it's going, and think about you know, making sure we make deliberate choices to the extent we can control them about what that world looks like. With both us, and what makes it so hard is we need that instinct. We need our kind of roots, and we also need to be open to directions that may go that are inconsistent with that. It's a tough balance. Yeah, totally. So speaking of the Beatles, uh, Maggie Feldman Pilch would uh, will strangle me in uh, if I don't talk to you at all about music. Um, <laughs> and so um, I I have noticed over over the years, mostly through Twitter, but also sometimes through other things, that uh, your musical tastes and mine are about as similar as any uh, buddy that I've ever run into. Uh, your jazz tastes are similar to mine. Your uh, chamber music tastes are similar to mine. And your uh, opera tastes are similar to mine, although I'm not sure if how far back you extend into the Baroque era. Um, so, but I'm fascinated by like whenever I meet somebody whose whose musical interests are as diverse as yours in fashions that are similar to my own diversity, uh, uh, musical diversity. And so I'm interested in first of all the question: How did you get interested in in uh, being a serious music listener? And secondly. How do you prioritize your musical listening? Do you think of it, do you think of yourself first and foremost as a jazz person? Or do you think of, of yourself first and foremost as a classical music person? Or do you uh, organize it some other way? Or do you just not choose not to organize it at all? Wow, this really is the know yourself. <laughs> Well, what did you think was going to happen? You're just going to drink and talk about yourself, Oren. <laughs> um, so um, I got into jazz really early. Um, I think the second LP I ever bought was Glenn Miller Gold, and it was on sale at $4.99 at the local. Glenn app. Miller doesn't count as jazz. Glenn Miller is big band. If you're a teenager, I, I Glenn Miller counts as jazz. Yeah, I think my I was... parents raised me on Glenn Miller, and I think jazz is bullshit. Like the Coltrane, Miles. D I mean, I like it, but it's also kind of just made up bullshit. Fuzzy. Okay, Oren's gonna. Oren's really <laughs> yeah. angry. At me you're, right you're treading on really. All right, let's turn it on, people. Um, <laughs> this um, is how to get Oren Kerr filed up without yeah, alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> now, in the second hour, we start with. <laughs> Train. Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, so I was listening, oh, and then I started playing the saxophone in third grade and or fourth grade, I guess, when we started playing it in school. And um, so I got into it that way and was really started listening seriously to jazz in high school. Um, and I, you know, in college, back when people bought CDs for music, every two weeks I would go to this awesome CD store off campus, and I would like I was sort of methodically going through the Miles Davis, John Coltrane. Uh, uh, material. So yeah, was just that was just, I was always a jazz. So jazz is really where it starts. And then for me, the classical came a lot later. Um, and my, my gateway uh, music was a uh, Rigoletto. Um, oh, that's which, interesting. Um, yeah, that, which well, that was the first opera I really got into. And it took me a long time. It, there, there are a couple of things in, in life that I was like, these are sophisticated things that sophisticated people enjoy. One should try them. Uh, and and maybe they will be enjoyable if one is sophisticated. And one of them I tried was scotch and that never took. I, I, I'm afraid it, it still to me just tastes like fire water. It's completely disgusting. Why? Yeah, exactly. No, and no. Rubber bands. Aged caviar and caviar just tastes like disgusting, disgusting fish. Do you like caviar? I do like caviar. Yeah, I do too. Um, it, it's, I, all, all, all seafoods are, are good with me, but um. Um, 
And then um, I, I got into Rigoletto and I saw it at the Kennedy Center in like 2006 or something like that and was just blown away, blown away. I was sitting there with this huge smile on my face for like all three hours or however long it was. And, and then I got into it that way. So that, that's like in the last 10 years or so, the opera classical music part. I still think of myself as mostly, I think I listen to jazz more than, more than anything else. That's interesting. Yeah, so for me, it's like almost the opposite. I got into, I was a classical music. I grew up in a classical music house and I got interested in jazz because of Porgy and Bess. And, you know, Porgy and Bess was the first opera that I ever fell for completely, uh, probably as a 14 or 15 year old. And I got interested in where these themes were coming from. And that led me to Thelonious Monk and Coltrane and, uh, and a lot of other stuff. And so it's almost exactly the opposite trajectory. Um, all right, well, Kate has gone to take the foil off her stuffed peppers in the oven, um, which I know because of the private chat that isn't private. Um, uh, uh, but I think we should probably wrap up because it's been an hour. I'm sure uh, none of us have had any fun, but in lieu of fun, we've had a good conversation, uh, a live stream on the wrong channel, and we have had no trolls, which is a good illustration of the point that if you don't give them any space, they go away and harass someone else. It's true. Also, like, not having a white woman who just writes about trolls on your show. I think it's, uh, no no I think offense, Orin. <laughs> I think it's also that the, no, I, I, I think you're thinking about it wrong, Kate. I think it's okay. trolls are really supportive of Oren's Fourth Amendment writings. It's a pro I, thing. I think that Oren, this has been thrilling. I have a million CFAA questions for Oren at some point in the future, but I'll put them in our in our Twitter DMs. Well, maybe we should ask we should ask the key one, which is if a troll shows up on Zoom in my Zoom meeting that I organize, I'm the host. Mm -hmm. And I say, you are authorized to ask questions without racial epithets only. And the troll responds in the, Q, in the Q and A with a string of racial epithets. Has that person exceeded authorized access within the meaning of the CFA? Oh my God. As with every CFA question, the answer just depends on what circuit you're in. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. It's like, who's prosecuting? <laughs> yeah, so, so which, which circuit can I, can I file a criminal complaint in? This the is 11. the most legal realist of all of my classes in law school. So, so the 11th circuit is the answer. Uh, everything violates the CFA in the 11th circuit. And there's actually a cert petition pending in a case called Van, Ver Van Buren, versus United States, which asked the Supreme Court to clear up this huge mess that the CFAA is, which I desperately hope the Supreme Court grants, because it'd be nice to be able to answer what violates the statute you file in an an authoritative way. So to any justices who are listening, um, uh, uh, please grant the cert petition in what's the case? Van Buren versus United States. Van Buren versus the United States. It's easy to remember because it's a president's name. What's the split? 11th and who? 11th again. The and everyone? 9th, probably. 9th, everyone, seventh, all of them. Yeah, like yeah, a whole bunch of them. So okay. 11th is the outlier. And there's a guy who was convicted of basically violating written terms on a computer, uh, which several circuits have said is perfectly legal. So. So it's a, it's a very, I think they're likely to take it. It's a perfect case for the court. To take. Cool. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, we'll have you back on to talk about that when they take it. Did you file an Amici? No, no, it, it was, it's a great petition. Jeff Fisher uh, is the counsel of record. He did a fantastic job as he always does. Uh, and there's some good amicus briefs already that were filed. So I think it's, I think it's going to be granted. Um, it's pretty likely it'll be granted. Well, that's great news. 
Cool. Um, well, Oren, I cannot thank you enough for coming on in lieu of fun show with me and Ben. Uh, we have had such a great time having you again. This is Oren Kerr. Um, he is a law professor at Berkeley and, um, a renowned scholar on um, technology and the law. The most um, cited scholar by judgment. Most, most cited scholar by the whole it. world. The whole world cites him. Everyone. It's just <laughs> on SSRN and JSTOR and uh, Google Scholar. Uh, I, I'm really sorry. Like I'm terrible at those types of things. I'm, our profession does not like really like I think like it underestimates how important it is that people cite you. Unfortunately, um, it is something that happens in other kind of areas of academia much more rigorously, but Oren is, um, like an incredible, incredible expert and scholar. And we've been thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that when you're not out there having fun with the coronavirus, that you are in fact, in lieu of fun, hanging out with us, um, and we will be uh, seeing you tomorrow at five o'clock uh, with special guest John Turk, who is Ben Wittes's, uh uncle. And we'll be talking to us about circumnavigating, what is it, Iceland or Greenland? Uh, he circumnavigated Ellesmere Island and he crossed the Pacific Ocean both in a kayak. Yes, there we go. I'm like so psyched to talk to this guy. He lives in Montana. I'm, I cannot wait. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming. Thanks. Thanks.